After a short break, due to our busy schedules, we're glad to be back with a new episode of the Golders Podcast. We'll jump straight into a snippet of what to expect today. The American game, they're incredible on the business side, you know, so the marketing, the commercial, the game day experience, absolutely different class, but that's been put in place and, and overshadowed the sporting side. So it's now a case of, right, we've got to bring the sporting side up to the same levels of professionalism and expertise as the business side. And if we do that, then you know, it'll go to a whole new level. We're excited to welcome Mark Cartwright onto today's episode. Mark is currently the sporting director for the USL. The United Soccer League is North America's largest and fastest growing professional soccer organization. Mark was also previously technical director for Stoke City, playing an instrumental role during Stoke's tenure in the Premier League, being involved in several high profile signings and much more. Hello, Mark. Hey, Keith, you okay? Um, very well, thank you. Very well indeed. So, Mark, where, whereabouts are you located currently? Uh, I'm currently in Tampa in a place, uh, well, just north of Tampa, in a place called Land Lakes. Oh, lovely. Nice part of the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to complain, mate. I'm not going to complain. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Mark, to us, our, uh, we always set off with the same question of every guest, but to us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you? Well, given the role I've got at the moment, um, I'm going to have to concur with how you're, how you see it, because you want to be able to give away nuggets of information and education along the way, but sometimes those nuggets are too big, so you have to do it in little sort of sprinkling of of knowledge along the way that, that builds up into the nuggets. So I'm actually going to go with you on, on sprinkling those particles of knowledge. Well, Mark, if you walked into a room full of strangers and were asked to give an introduction about yourself and your professional career, what would be your intro? <laughs> now, that would depend on the room because you could go one or two ways. I could go that I was a bang average first division slash second division footballer in England that uh, learned from his mistakes uh, and then, you know, carried on learning the game and, and did varying different roles through it. Or you could go down the route of a bit of a veteran that, uh, that enjoys learning every day about different parts and different aspects of the game. So, I mean, you know, I've done every single, for me, I've, I've been a player, I've been a coach, I've been a, a football agent, I've been a technical director at a Premier League club, now I'm a sporting director of a league. So, you know, all the way through, you know, I've been in the game for over 30 years, but like I say, every day you learn something new about it. So over that period of, oh, a long period, in actual fact, over an eight-year period, Mark, you just mentioned about being a technical director and you were in actual fact a technical director at, at Stoke City working alongside and with Tony Poulis, Mark Hughes and many other uh, managers. But what, what did that role entail? So I think it evolved over the years. So when, when I first went in, uh, it, was, it was about helping to create um, a recruitment structure 
that could integrate the world because at that when I first went in Stoke were traditionally known for buying players of a certain height and only from England um, and and of course because of that at a higher price so it's could we could we recruit players from within England but also abroad that would would make more sense financially um, it was also you know at that point in time we we had the owners you know the coach family incredibly passionate about the game and passionate about the club and they're also incredibly passionate about the academy and producing players through the academy so at that point in time players weren't really coming through the academy so um, we had to we had to evolve the recruitment around the academy some of the, the coaches some of the staff around that uh, and create a a link between the two that, that didn't exist at a certain point in time. So I guess the whole thing uh, started off being based around recruitment and then it was based about their pathways and creating a, a different type of squad with more value in it as well. That um, Because, you know, Stoke traditionally hadn't traded players, so they wanted to be involved in the, the marketplace where you could go and buy... Uh, a Marko Arnautovic, for example, for two and a half million and then sell him four or five years later where he's been incredibly successful to you for about 25 months. So we, we started to do that and the owners would then, you know, quite happily reinvest that back into the squad. So, you know, by, if you had a succession plan, so for example, if we take goalkeepers, we had, we'd bought Jack Butland. Jack had been out on loan. He'd done his, um, you know, apprenticeship, so to speak. And he was ready to go into the first team, which enabled us to sell Asmir Begovic to Chelsea, which then enabled us to put the money towards buying Zerdan Shakiri. So, you know, it was it was putting all those little pieces of a jigsaw puzzle together. Um, you know, so, some some managers were easier to work with than others, but uh, overall it was a you know it was one hell of a role. Prior to becoming a technical director, so you've obviously just spoke about that role and 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 what it entailed but what did the roadmap look like for you and how did you become a technical director it's actually a, a really good question david so um when i stopped playing i did the you know i hadn't planned for it um which you know was obviously a mistake in itself but when you're when you're in your 20s you can't see your 30s are literally just around the corner um so I came out of football and, and I didn't really know what to do. Uh, so, you know, you sort of moped around a little bit. And then I started getting calls from uh, ex-players because, I, you know, I'd, I'd done a degree in America when I was younger. Um, you know, they were coming to me for advice on contracts and what should they do and how should they do things. So it seemed to sort of be a natural step into becoming an agent. Um, and you all, because I'd never played in the Premier League, that was going to be an incredibly difficult marketplace for me to break into. So I spent a lot of time, uh, effort and, and money, of course, going into Europe and finding the contacts in Europe, finding people that I could trust that had um, players that could, could help me break into the Premier League. Um, so I spent a lot of time doing that. And that was the roadmap, really. There wasn't anything beyond that. It was just to be how hard could I work at becoming the best agent that I could be and how could I get the, the players and and I ended up working with a, a, a law firm in Stoke called, called Bezix. And at the time, the owner, who's a very good friend of mine now, a bloke called Gary Meller, 
he was very well thought of by the Peter and John Coates and Tony Scholes, the CEO, and they'd be constantly forever asking who's your best agent, who's your best agent. And um, eventually it got down to the point where I did a couple of trips with Tony to take them out to places like Atlanta because I had a good relationship with the Ruggieri family who owned it at the time, just to see how they were developing their academy, how they were developing their first team, because they were probably one of the very first clubs that successfully invested into their academy, played the kids in the first team, stuck with them, sold them at a high price and brought the next ones through. So when Alessandro was in charge there, I think he you know, brought, and this is before big ridiculous transfer fees as, as we see now, I think he, he oversaw something like 300 million euros worth of transfer. So it's, you know, it's a big, big thing. So I think going through that, when Stoke then needed somebody in this, for this position, I'd already sort of got to know them, got to understand them. They'd got to understand me and, and had seen the contacts that I had around the world. And I think that then, um, I didn't know it was coming. You know, I thought I was just doing my job as an agent. Uh, but when when the opportunity landed on the doorstep, you know, to go into a club of that size at that time, it was just an absolute no-brainer. So it wasn't plotted, um, but it was it was done through hard work and perseverance. So alongside being a, a former professional footballer, Mark, you... You went over to the States, did a degree out there. Did your degree actually dovetail into the role? Did it morph into becoming a uh, the technical director and going into agency? How did that work? So it, it's, I did the degree when I was 18. So I did my YTS, um, got released from, from York City. I had the choice to go on trial or or come, come out to America to do the degree. And I'm thankful that I did the degree because leaving home at 18, you know, properly leaving home, as in leaving the country, you know, when I was at York, I was there during the week and went home at a weekend. But that, that made me grow up. I think if I hadn't have come over here in that instance, I'd have just drifted away and, you know, become forgotten in football as, as thousands and thousands of young kids do. Um, it made me grow up. It made me understand um, my own capabilities in terms of, you know, brain capacity and what you could you could do. So I actually credit coming here to do the degree that actually then got me a career as a professional footballer. But then, like you say, it then took me the next step forward into the agency business because, you know, when you play with people and you've done a degree, then you looked upon slightly different because the stereotypical footballer is somebody that people think doesn't have many brains. Um, so I, I guess it all tied in together, you know, in terms of how I would structure as an agent, how do you create a pathway? How do you put a structure in place for a player to get to the, the his capabilities? You know, how do you help them do that? And again, you, you took that, I took that into Stoke with me. So as you're looking at the academy and looking at succession planning and pathways and, and it's, it's, it's all about that um, that part of it that I like. You know, I like building. I like seeing um, things created. I like people developing and getting exactly where they need to be. So I think it, it did help. It did help a lot. I'm a little curious here around there's a difference. So what is the difference, if you like, between the term technical director and the director of 
of football. Did you know, it's um, there's three sorts of standards. So you've got sporting director, director of football, technical director, and director of football operations. They're all the same role, but they're all, they will all be, each club will be slightly different. So um, I never got involved in medical uh, at Stoke, but um, Kev Thalwell at Wolves did, you know, but then he maybe didn't get involved in something else. So it's, it's all the same title, Keith. It's just, um, it's then down to the individual club as to what actually the job description really entails. I mean, I've always looked at this sort of technical director is the one that's got the specific detail around working with the the coaches, working around the, the not the development plan, but the structure of how you put plans together for, for sessions. So effectively, that wasn't what you did. Or was it something that you got involved with whilst at Stoke? Well, we had all our technical uh, committees and um, that obviously you would sit on. But, I mean, you know, it, first and foremost, it's about the first team um, and trying to make sure that you keep the success in that first team. And then on top of that, you've got to create players. You know, you've got to, but you've also got to, you know, the academy at Stoke is, it's, it's about creating a player that can um, get into your first team. But if they can't get into your first team, can you create a good footballer? And if you can't create a good footballer, are you creating good human beings? So it's the whole it's the whole thing. So there's not really, um, there's no real difference. It's just a title, Keith. It really is. It's just you get involved in the nuts and bolts of, of more or less absolutely everything that there is to do with uh, players and the footballing side of, of, a, of a club. Mark, I'm just going to jump back into what you've just touched on. So you said, obviously, you want to create good footballers because that's, that's the job, I think. If you're not doing that, then you'd probably be out of a job relatively quickly. But you also touched on a little part there. If you can't create the good footballer or that just doesn't come around, can you create a good person? What would a good person look like to you in your role? Well, I think you, you know, you want you want players to have a bit of humility. You want them to continue, uh, you want them to be respectful. Uh, humble, you know, act, act in the right manner that is befitting um, a person of that potential stature. So I guess it's, it's trying to instill the ethics and morals that, you know, you as a club stand by. So it, it's, you know, again, you know, I mean, it's little things like your pleases, your thank yous, your shaking hands. It's, you know, it's that type of thing that, that, goes with them for the rest of their life, you know, not somebody that's just strutting around, you know, with the earring or the tattoos or the Versace gear, you know, it's trying to make sure that these people still have their feet on the ground and they're, and they're good, they're good characters. And character is, has, a, has a lot to do with, with recruitment, but it's so hard to actually, to judge sometimes. What would you look for? I mean, you're not, you talk about character, I know it's, when they're in your environment, you can obviously control somewhat how you want the behaviours to look or what you want the behaviours to look like. But in terms of recruiting a player, what would you look for? In terms of their character, I think, uh, first of all, you obviously can't get to know them. So you're, you're, 
you're having little snippets. So it's it's when you're watching the games, how are they? How do they react to the good times? How do they react to adversity? How do they? How do they act in the warm up? How do they act it towards the fans? So it's trying to build a picture of what that person's like in those different situations. Obviously, then at some point you'll get to meet them. So, you know, you can spend um, an amount of time with people to try and judge that. But you're not a psychologist, so you can't fully understand the character. You know, if it's a younger player, you get the opportunity to meet the parents. What are the parents like? Because, you know, sometimes it's a lot of stuff is learned behaviour. So if the parents seem, again, decent people, decent characters. And sometimes with the academy, you, you get to understand the parents if they come through your academy. But if you're recruiting in, it's a case of, you know, we, myself and an academy director, we signed a player from Denmark and, and we went over, we flew over and we went to see the parents and we had a meal with them at the, the house. So we got to understand them. We got to see the lad in his home environment. And, you know, you knew he was a good character. You knew the parents were decent people. And so coupled with his footballing ability, it was, it, that was a no brainer. And he, you know, he ended up playing in Stoke's first team and, you know, he's, he's moved on from there. But it's just trying to do as much due diligence as you can. But, of course, you're not that full psychologist. You're never going to see the true person until they're actually in the door. You can see some red flags and you'll, you've got, obviously, access to the internet now, which will tell you everything you need to know about them. You can dig into who's around them, what the background is. So you, you can build a picture like that. But... You know, it's it's probably the hardest trait to actually scout because, like we say, until they're actually in that building and they're actually in your environment, you never truly get to know the character. Just following on from that, Mark, and just to dig it slightly deeper is, how do you know? You know, there'll become a point, a crunch point, where you've got to make a decision. What, what do you then base that decision on? So, I mean, you, listen, every every club's got a team of scouts. They've got all, certainly in, in the, the UK and abroad, you know, it's, you've got all the systems, the Y scouts, the scout sevens, stats, bombs, statistics, everything that can show you. You've got the eyes on the games. So you've got everything around the player that you can do. Uh, and, it, and it's just filtering it and making sure, Keith, that what are the red flags? Okay, Um you know, we'll, we'll take um, we signed a player from Stoke from Germany, and if you if you looked on the internet about him, the, the press in Germany hounded him, and they absolutely battered him. And he was a you know a relatively young lad, and he was he was giving them stories. And Mark Hughes and I flew out to to Germany, met him, sat down with him, and and realised that he, he wasn't a problem. You know, he was. He was in an environment that was causing him problems and he was he was probably pushing back in the wrong way. Uh, and we brought him over here and he, he, you know, took him out of that bubble and he was he was absolutely unbelievable. So I think sometimes it's it's looking at what the red flags are. Are they something that you can overcome? Is it something that the coach can can help with to develop the character that can that can put all the noise to one side and let him have the stage to show what he can really do. Um, and then there's sometimes Keith where you'll just go, no, that's that's totally the wrong person. He's too he's too withdrawn or he doesn't interact enough or in adversity, you know, he walks off the pitch and he kicks the bottles and it's punching the, the dug out and it's that you know the people around him aren't aren't necessarily the greatest people in the world. And the biggest part of the job sometimes is keeping the wrong people out of the club. 
you know, and trying to, so, you know, 90% of the names that will, will get scouted that will land on your desk just won't be the right ones. I mean, that's the, that's the crunch call, but you, you're going, you're going into making that call armed with as much information as you've got. You know, it's, it's like buying a house. If you're buying a house for you know, 5 million, you're going to want to check every little aspect that you can. And then you've also got to rely on the people whose job it is to do the foundation checking or to check for any other bits and bobs. So, you know, you're, you're putting your trust in people and, and, and going from there. Well, there's obviously a lot that goes into getting the right player into the club from a, a player standpoint, of course, and then the personal standpoint. And you've obviously had lots of experience through both being a player and agent, technical director, but you also mentioned, or it was brought up, that you are now the sporting director for the USL, which is the United Soccer League. So the USL itself, USL Championship, reaches it reaches a population of, of more than 84 million and is designed, of course, to help grow the game across North America. So with you being the sporting director now, what, what was it that attracted you to this role? So the, I'd, um, it's a, it's a, so when I was at Stoke, we had a relationship with Orlando City through a guy called Phil Rawlings, who had built it, and, and they originally started in the USL. Um, and we kept that relationship going. So every time I would come over to honor that relationship, I'd come into the, the USL offices and, and, see, and then see the growth, see the vision of you know, the, the, the owners and see where it was going. So, and I'd kept in touch with them. And then um, an ex-teammate of mine and a good friend of mine became the president probably, you know, I think it's about nine years ago now. So again, I think he went into the league at the same time I went into Stoke. So because you've got that friend, you, you're watching each other's pathways. So I, I already knew a lot about the league, what it was doing, how it was growing and where, where it was going to. And I think at the point when they reached out and said, would I be interested in doing this? It was, it's, it's at a point now where it's, in, in, a, in many ways, it's, it's, it's evolving, it's stepping out of the shadows. I mean, you talk about championship, we've also got League One, we have League Two and we have Academy. And then, you know, there's going to be, um, there's a W League, which is uh, an amateur women's league. And then in a year or so, there's going to be a professional Super League for the, on the women's side. And actually the footprint, so for League, League Two clubs, we've got 113. Now they're all amateur, but we've got the biggest footprint across, across America. So I think when I looked at what was the opportunity, well, the opportunity was to come in and to actually help develop and mould the level of football in this country. And then when you look at where the league was going, the opportunities for the clubs, for the players, for the talent pool that is here, for the coaches to, to, to evolve as well, it just looked endless. So, you know, for me, if you sit back and you go, every player wants to leave his mark on the game, don't they? They either want to be successful and win trophies or, or whatever it is you want to do. I think as a sporting director, you want to be given the opportunity to actually build something. And, and that's what really attracted me to this because, you know, it's a, a great, great point now where, you know, there's something like $3 billion um, being invested into the structure of stadiums, of training grounds. So it's really, it's really growing, you know, but in terms of the age of the league and how, how old it is, it's still a toddler. So a lot of the role is 
is educational. You know, it's it's helping the owners, it's helping the sporting directors within the league, it's helping the coaches understand how to develop a player, understand how to see the player as an asset, as a liability. Um, because, I mean, if you know anything about the American game, they're incredible on the business side, you know, so the marketing, the commercial, the game day experience, absolutely different class, but that's been put in place and, and overshadowed the sporting side. So it's now a case of, right, we've got to bring the sporting side up to the same levels of professionalism and expertise as the business side. And if we do that, then, you know, it's, um, it'll go to a whole new level. It sounds like it's definitely an exciting period and uh, in the development of football professional game and over in the US, having been there myself for uh, on and off since 1981, I've seen this evolution taking place, but never really had any any solid structure in terms of where they go with it. But from your perspective, Mark, uh, as being the the league's sporting director. What are some of the typical day-to-day -to -day challenges that you would face? Um, again, I mean, when I first came in, I've only been here a year. So when I first came in, um, it was what we would consider basic things. So contracts, poor clauses in contracts, uh, even sort of violation of FIFA rules. Um, and it was just a lack of understanding of, of what, what they were doing or why they were doing it or... They were being guided by the wrong people. So day-to-day, -day it's, it's about helping them all understand what they, they need to be doing to be successful. And each club is different, so you can't just keep bleating on the same story to, to the masses. You know, each club is different. So it's, it's can we help them evolve and develop? Can we get the right structures in place? Can we get the right processes put together? You know, and then and then it's little things like, okay, well, how do we how do we make sure this keeps going? So do we do we develop and build like a, a leadership and innovation hub that is you know within the league? And part of that will be certifications. You know, if you want to be a, a CEO or a sporting director, then you need to have been on this course that will go through how to build a high performing team, how to deal with agents, transfers, contracts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. You know, it all, it's, it's a very slow process and you can't hit them with too much. So it's, it's building, it's building, it's putting build, the building blocks in place. So day to day, it's about planning, putting strategies in place. How do we get the message across? How do we market it successfully to the clubs? You don't want to come across going, oh, look, you know, this is the way we did it in England or here's another, here's the head coach from England. You don't want to do that. It's, it's about, you know, truly understanding what their marketplace is and then how do I then change the message so that it resonates with them because they then understand that I understand their market? Does that make sense? It does. And I do have a question regarding it. And I think obviously the elephant in the room, the US is, you mentioned it's a different market. So if you're in England, you're in a country that you could probably be in a car out and within five hours, you've pretty much touched every single club in the country. Um, in the US, a lot of the time you could drive 10 hours and not see anybody. Yeah. So with that being the case, in terms of distances, in terms of the size of the country, in terms of the time zones, all of those factors, how does that impact 
um, what you're doing because you can have something where you want to do something in person, but it's very, very difficult to get them there. What, what would you go through to, to ensure that everybody's getting that value? So, I mean, we're trying to put together um, a series of webinars for our, for our coaching staff and for all the board of governors or the presidents. And, it, and so that, that sort of, I mean, Zoom's a great thing now, so you can put these things together. You know, we've had, we've had Dan Ash with Damien Camoli, Greg Broughton, we've had a whole, Mike Rick, you know, we've had Association Sports and Directors on there. We've got um, Damien Camoli in Toulouse um, talking about their player pathways and academy developments coming up at the end of the month. So it's, it's trying to do that, David, to make sure that everybody gets some piece of information. Um, also trying to explain to the clubs that, look, you know, I'm accessible. I've worked in a club. I'm now working in the league, but I actually know what it what a club goes through. So in some ways, I might be a lone voice within the league because I've I've been there and done it on the on the club side. So in terms of time zones, it's trying to make sure that you know if we've got a guest from Europe, that the East Coast can still be on that call. It means the guest from Europe has to probably be doing his talk at six, seven, eight o'clock. So you have to factor all these things in. And I don't think you actually realise the size of the country until you're here. And then it is a case of, okay, well, how do we make sure the interaction between the leagues and between the clubs and the coaches is actually, you know, better? And and that's one of the things that that we're working on at the moment is making sure that, you know, everybody feels a part of this league and nobody feels isolated because they're out you know, where there's there's nobody else. If you know exactly like you're saying, you know, within 10 hours, there's there's nobody there. But I mean, again, you know, it's um it's something you have to get your head around, and then it's uh and then it's it's trying to figure out how to roll it out so that the standards are, you know, if you if you're gonna put standards in place, how do, how do they how can they be met? You know, and so uh, it's making sure that if you're running a games program, well, okay, if there's 10 teams within an area, are they all of the same level? Because you don't want to go and play, let's say, an A-rated game, and then two weeks later you're playing against, you know, and you're winning 10 nil. We're trying to, it's trying to balance it. And it's um it's a difficult one to try and solve, but you know, it, it's certainly something we are trying to solve to make sure everybody feels, you know, we talk about our clubs being community clubs, but you know, we want every person in the league to feel as though they're part of the USL community. And that's it's um it's an ongoing process. That's for sure. Well, the integration part of it all, Mark, and because of the size and the demographic, uh, cultural differences, environmental differences, and then rolling out training programmes, educational programmes are going to, for sure, enhance the, the experiences for all concerned within the game. It embodies everything, and just one ball can touch so so many lives. But how do you monitor? How would you monitor this type of? You got an educate if you got educational programs that you're rolling out. How do you police those? Or maybe that's not the right term. But how would you monitor it so that you're getting a consistency across? You know that same message is being delivered across all the spectrum. It's. I mean, it's an ongoing process and one that we've literally only started this year. So I think um, when I look back 12 months and, and, I'm, and I'm solely looking at the professional teams 
at the moment. So where, where I was 12 months ago, when I gave a presentation to the owners and the board of directors, to where we are now, I think we've made significant progression. And I think you you can monitor it in, in how, how the league is looking in terms of player development. You can monitor it in terms of um, are we meeting standards? So operationally, you know, the, the standards are set, you know, in terms of fields, floodlights, facilities, et cetera. You know, so that, that's probably an easier one to monitor because it's very visual uh, and it's there. But in terms of monitoring the education, I think it's just by, by speaking to people, you know, if, if it's being able to find a key message that resonates with somebody within a club that means that they take that back to their club and they implement it. So, and, and sometimes, Keith, it's hard to say this, but sometimes they have to get hurt before they realise what you've been talking to them about. So if you're talking to them about uh, contract management and keeping the asset value of your player by giving him a three-year contract rather than a one-year contract with a one-year option, which then, you know, it suddenly takes them being in a panic. We've got to sell this player this 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 window, otherwise we've got we lose all monetary value. Or it's, you know, it's getting not understanding what the TMS system is or not not having the people that do it correctly and then getting hit with a with a training compensation fine for them to suddenly realize this is what this is what he was talking about so you know some people um will get hurt to to understand the process and some people you know you can just see the cogs whirring as, you, as you're talking through it and then they're in touch with you and it's trying to be in regular communication with as many people as you can um to make sure that this is continually moving forward and it's repeating the messages that I started off with 12 months ago along the way and adding to them and adding to them and adding to them so that that understanding about the game becomes greater and greater. On the back of that, Mark, if, if you had to write a list of traits and qualities of a sporting director, what would be on the list? Ooh, perseverance. Um, you've got to be... Prepare to put in the hard yards. You've got to be political as well in how you deal with people. You've got to be able to read people. You've got to be able to understand certain situations and jump in to resolve that, you know. So you've got to be decisive. You've got to be strategic as well. You've got to be able to put strategic plans in. And you've got to enjoy building things. You've got to enjoy you know, putting something in place and seeing it work. And if it's not working, why isn't it working? Um, so all, all those little traits. And then you've also got to be a good a good person for me. That's some great traits there, Mark, without a shadow of a doubt. And a lot of good people within the game. I know we, we get, uh, regardless of where we are around the world, uh, the quality of people that are trying to uh, provide a, uh, a service, if you like, I guess it is a service uh, to high quality. is It's very, it's there for all to see. Now, we, we've mentioned one or two things around the sporting director, and you've shared with us a little bit of your history. A technical director, it sounds like as it's those roles are very similar. Being a being a, a people type person, but from a personal perspective, what is and equally from the USL, what is the what's the primary aims and of and objectives of the league? And equally for you, I'm just going to go quickly, Keith. I'll answer that question in a second. But going back to the traits, you've got to have a bloody thick skin as well. 
because um, there's a lot of people that want to shoot you down. So you've got to have thick skin. But anyway, so the primary objectives for the league are, you know, we want to want to continue the growth. We want to continue the development of the game here. And we want to do that through clubs that become completely ingrained into the communities around them. Um, so that, that's one of the big driving factors behind the league. You know, um, Alec, the CEO, played the game. He knows the game. Jake, the president, played the game. He knows the game. A lot of the staff in the office have played the game, maybe not to a professional level, but over here at college, you know, so they, and they've done the coach. So they know, they understand the game. So I think the aims and the objectives are to firstly make the league as strong as we can make it within the limitations of, you know, the financial limitations. We want our clubs to be forward-facing in the community. We want them to be either break-even or making their owners money. Um, we, we're not a million miles away from that at the moment, and that's because of the great work that's been put in by the, the business side of the, of the league. Um, but moving forward, I think it's, can we, can we do something unique? You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're checking out and we're researching in a, in a big, big way. We're investing a lot into the research around promotion and relegation and aligning with the international calendar, you know, with, and, and being that sort of standout league in America that when the rest of the world looks at America, we're very similar to them. You know, we, the clubs own the players, so they're very easy to deal with. They're, if they're aligned internationally on the calendar, it, it makes things a hell of a lot easier. Um, and, and promotion and relegation, I think, is would be, for me, that little bit extra that football fan over here wants to see because, you know, they the fan over here watches the Premier League, they watch the Championship, they watch the Bundesliga, they see all the excitement around the relegation battle, the promotion battle. And, and I think, you know, meaningful games, it's, it's what will develop our clubs more and more because the fans want to see meaningful games. They want to have that excitement. So there, there, there are a whole load of different things there that we're looking at. Can we become a bigger developer of players? Can we become a bigger player within the transfer market? You know, and again, by aligning with the international calendar, you, you can you can get that involvement a little bit more because everything is is on the same thing. And, it, and it's moving forward. You know, we're doing some a lot of players at the moment are are coming into our ecosystem because there is a pathway to Europe because it's not as restricted as maybe other leagues are. You know, so we've had players that have gone to Scandinavia, to, to France as a popular destination at the moment, um, to Germany, obviously, you know. So it's, it's can we evolve all of this, Keith? Can we make it better, stronger, more quality on the field, um, better quality off the field as well in terms of the people that are, are running the clubs? Um, so it's, it's, it's a long, this is a long-term plan, I think. It's not a... It's not a quick fix. It's not putting a plaster over it. This is really, can we build something that is going to be here for the next hundred years, you know, and, and sticks. And, you know, it becomes a little bit like it is in Europe. If you, if you are born in a certain area, that's your club. You know, can we, can we develop that? And our, and our clubs and the league are doing a great job of that at the moment. And it's, it's how do we just move that forward in a bigger and better and bolder way. But just for... Clarification. Uh, I know David's got a he's got a question also, but players moving from the US over to Europe is somewhat more challenging than what start to consider that. It sounds easy, but of course it's not. 
easier to move to Europe or the mainland Europe than to actually play in the UK. Could you actually help to clarify what those restrictions may be and what are the actual pathways for players to be able to play in Europe? So each country has different rules and regulations around um, professional or players coming in. So it's it's now on impossible for you have to so to get into England, for example, you have to earn the the GBE points, and 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 those points are earned based on the level of the league you're in. The you know, do you play in international tournaments? Do you play internationally? Do you play Champions League? So there's all sorts of there's all sorts of rules and regulations to get into England. Um, now, a young 18 year old lad from America, 99.9 percent will not hit that required GBE ruling. So it's it's a different pathway then. So each country, like I say, will have different rules. So it is actually easier to get into a Germany or get into a Holland. So if you look at Holland, for example, um, it's then based around, it's not based around what level you're at, it's based around how much money. So they basically say, well, if you think the 18-year-old kid is good enough, he's got to earn a certain salary. If you think he's that, that good, then we'll bring him in. Um, so... You know, France is a bit easier. Spain is a bit easier. Um, so each England is actually the hardest, sort of strictest one to get into. So you have to go. So I mean, you used to see it years ago where clubs had affiliations in Holland or Denmark or Belgium, you know, Man United or Liverpool or whoever. You know, now you're getting multi-club models where they have a club in a different country. So you could literally bring a, a, an 18-year-old lad from America. Signing for, let's say, top five club in England that's got a club that also owns a club in, in Holland. He goes to Holland, automatically he gets more points because he's playing in a better league at a better standard if that club... So, you know, there, there are pathways like that. But ultimately, I think, you know, for, for our clubs, it's about getting the player to the next tier. And is the next where he goes next he can go and play and he can continue to develop again and then move on again. And our clubs can then see the benefits of the add-on fee. Um, you know, so it's, there's, each player will be different. You'll look at one player. There's a player in our league at the moment that I am 100% convinced of will, will end up playing in one of the top five leagues in the country for one of the good best teams. You know, but at the moment, we've, I'm helping this club plot a pathway to the next level where he's going to go. They're going to receive a, a good fee. They're going to receive good add-ons and a good sell-on. But more, more importantly, and I guess this goes back to the agent background in me, is, you know, where can we send that player so he continues his development to get to where actually he really should be? You know, I, I personally believe he, he should be going to, you know, one of, one of the top five teams in England, but he can't get there. So how do we help him get there? And then how does that benefit our club you know, and and then how does that benefit the league as we start, as you set the level for transfers? You know, so we, we set that we've set the marketplace, and now it's it needs to keep growing. So I've probably gone a little bit off track there, but I've uh, tried to answer the best I can. You've actually helped me because I had a question as well, um, and it's really intriguing, obviously, to hear the insight from someone that's really seen it from every side, as we spoke about. Because agents are looking at it from a perspective, a technical director from a perspective, a technical director of a club, and then someone that's overseen a league 
But with with all those experiences and all of your experience working in performance environments, certain clubs forge ahead. So around the world, they just that's the way it works. There are clubs that forge ahead, and whether it's money, uh, personnel, etc. In your experience, what are the clubs that are forging ahead doing that average clubs are not doing? I think there's there's two ways of looking at it. There's there's the investment into the the people within the club, the environment. So, and it doesn't have to be a financial investment. It can be, you know, ongoing development. You know, can you put, you know, can we put Keith on a course that makes him even better doing what he's doing now? Um, or if it's not the right thing, then can we bring in somebody that is um, that is better to take his work? I think it's about understanding what's the vision of the club understanding what your limitations are and then making sure you grow and develop people within that environment. That's what makes it a high performing environment. If everybody is developing and growing and, and, and all on the same page. So I think the best clubs have got a mixture of both. They've got a mixture of, they've got the capability to invest and they've also got the knowledge to invest into people within that environment. Well, Mark, final question. Because uh, we could be, we uh, really enjoyed this, to be honest. It's been very insightful. Uh, the USL hope by uh, 2023 to have six, six leagues where you've already mentioned, I mean, the women uh, having their contribution as well. What needs to happen in the US, medium to long term, for, for these things, to, you know, for our sustainability? For them to become on the world stage, um, for the USL or for the US as a whole, Keith. The USL. So I, I think um, there's a there's a as I mentioned before, there's a key in terms of financial investment going into stadiums and facilities. So that that's a big thing. That that puts the the real sort of footprint. If you've got a stadium, and that that sort of helps the club immediately. I think it's either two or three times its revenue, you know, because it owns its own stadium and it, and it builds it up that way. So then you've got more money to reinvest back into the back into the club and into the team. I think for it to really work, we've got to find a way for me, and this is only my opinion, um, to get past the pay-to-play model um, that exists in the marketplace because you're creating a middle-class sport. You're missing out on the kids that kick about in the street because their parents can't afford the thousand or two thousand dollars to go into an academy. So, you know, it's maybe it's you know increased investment into the academy structures that are within that already exist within the league. You know, I mentioned before we've got um, we have something like five thousand players in, in League Two. You know, but as David mentioned earlier, the country's so big, clubs can't scout every single team. So, how do we solve that problem? How do we solve those? Get keep those players. So they don't drift out of the game. Um, so they don't disappear. Um, so I think it's a case of continuing the education, continuing the investment into the structure, the infrastructure, trying to look at the academy and how we build that. Because the talent pool is it's unbelievable here. You know, if you, they have athleticism, they have pace, they have the mental strength, you know, they, they understand the game. And it's, can we make sure that, you know, our, our coaches are given further educational programmes? Again, because I, I'm not sure, certainly up until recently, 
you know, if you did your badge with the Federation, that was it. You were on your own. There was no further CPD. So as a, as a league, can we invest into that? Which, again, makes the, the product better because you have better coaches that can create and develop better players. So it, everything sort of comes together, Keith, um, in terms of, you know, investing into, you know, getting the right people with the right knowledge in the right positions, you know, get, giving the coaches something to work with, something to work towards. And, and you know, bringing those, the recruitment processes up to speed, bringing, you know, can we push the academies further forward? Can, what else can we do to develop the game? So I think medium to long-term, it's the benefits for the league will be, you know, if we can slowly, because it's not going to happen overnight, if we can slowly put all these little things into place and they click into place. And when you look at it and the, the jigsaw is hopefully completed one day, you know, you've got a league that is developing players. It has the platform to give these players the pathway into the first team and then into, into Europe or into the MLS, you know. Um, and and it's, it's that sort of continual growth of the game, that continual growth and strength of the game. This is, for me, because of the, the GBE rules, because of some of the other rules, this is probably the last untapped marketplace and that's because it's so vast. People don't know how to, to tap into it. So, you know, by by 2023, can we have put some systems in place that means it, it can be, players can be seen, players can be developed, players can be given minutes on the pitch. And then ultimately, if they're good enough, they can fulfil their dreams and they can go and play, you know, in, in Europe. Well, Mark, I think on behalf of, of my dad and I, we want to thank you for coming on. I know from... From my side, I, I understand the, the system a little bit better. I'm, as we spoke about uh, a couple of weeks ago, I'm involved with a USL club. So I understand the system and a little bit and um, what's taking place. And it's super exciting to see that. And I'm sure there's lots of, of progressions to come from, from that side. So again, from, from my dad and I, I we want to thank you. That was Really, really insightful. I don't think, I don't think we've had anyone on yet that has done pretty much every role. I think you've player, agent, technical director of a club, sporting director of a league. Um, I think there's only. I don't know if you've been a kit man yet, but that that could be probably crossed off later down the line if needed. But yeah, thank you very much. It's been great. Uh, it's been it's been my pleasure. And, um, you know, genuinely, I'd like you to, to both keep in touch because I think, again, as uh, as we say right at the start, you're always learning. And I think, you know, you've both got uh, a lot of knowledge that, again, you know, for, for I'd like to tap into as well. It's been an absolute pleasure, James. It really has. Thanks, man. Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.